picking it up in this verse, which is where we'll find ourselves, I think, impressed with the Lord. His parents, it says in verse 41, went to Jerusalem every year. Now, let me take you back one verse so that you also have an anchor point that I think is enthusiastic and also one that would be for Jesus. Um, This is what he did. This is what they did. It says this, the child grew and became strong in spirit. That's verse 40. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The importance of that is that this was Jesus, but it's also, I believe as well, an underpinning of raising kids. And it's spiritual to raise kids. And as we raise them spiritually, you need to understand there is a strengthening that defies culture and a variety of other influences as well. Whatever even means that Satan may use to corrupt the innocence of a child It's really important to know that growth is dependent upon being anchored spiritually, spirit-filled young kids. Some would say, well, don't you have to be beyond the age of innocence? Don't you have to be able to make that certain confession in order for that to be true, full of the Spirit? Well, I know with certainty, before I ever approached an aisle way on a church, that I had discussions with God, clear motive in conversing with him in the night hours. I think that I can project anywhere from at least three years, four years of age, pondering the things of God. And ultimately, even at my bedside, during times in which my parents were by us and we were praying, I really felt a connection with the Lord on everything, as I evaluated my young life, the things that ultimately I had desires for, I believe it was all substantially because of the Spirit of God. In times in which even as a young child, there was an extraordinary wisdom that would be given to me, at times. A lot of foolishness that the Lord had to save me from, but definitely with certainty, wisdom that He gave me in my time of need as being one who, by experience, just wasn't quite there. I was vulnerable in many ways to making mistakes because the experience of learning from the consequence of mistakes hadn't yet mingled with my everyday life and spirit. So this is important because we need to know, or at least be reminded, that this couple, Mary and Joseph, now years later, are overseeing a 12-year-old boy whom we know as God, Jesus. There's about a 13-year difference between my eldest brother and myself and my twin because we came as a package. And so one of the things that I can tell you is that that's quite a leap of age. The Lord allowed it to be you know, slowly cinched up and we have great fellowship. When I see him, he's been more of the elusive brother, older. He was overseas at a time when I was still going through elementary school. So when Dave was 
in combat in Vietnam, I would have been like a third grader, third or fourth grader, something like that. And so Dave was always this kind of elusive, in my opinion, hero kind of brother. He was a mystery. He was kind of the guy that, you know, you'd hear the horse, you know, break. <laughs> and in your mind, you'd see this stallion and he'd leave a silver bullet. Was that Dave, Mom? That was your brother, Dave. And he'd be off to the next thing. Jesus right now at 12, though, is not simply engaged in interest that a 12-year-old might have. He is a young scholar. At the age of 12, there aren't many teachers, and I'm one of them, that could say on blanket at 12 years of age, I'm attending a classroom of college you know, maturity in the students that I'm overseeing. I would see extraordinary kids, but I can't say that all of them were college at the age that I taught them, which was nine and ten-year-olds. I, I saw the potential of prodigy. But Jesus actually was extraordinarily brilliant, steeped at the age of 12 in the things that related to theology, the knowledge of God. Why? Well, obviously he was God, but it didn't diminish at all the responsibility of Mary and Joseph seeing that he dedicated to the Lord would be brought to the Lord annually at least. In Nazareth, which is where they lived, he grew up. He would have been probably very likely by his father's side attending in whatever capacity he could the synagogue, the time or place where men would meet to pray and to review scripture. And this was his lifestyle. Once a year, though, the family would make this pilgrimage. The reason that that's important as far as what this year ought to look at from God's perspective, or what we ought to see in the same you know, kind of critique, is how is it that my maturity as a spiritual person who's grown up as a child of God continues on plane. I know that there are rough seas. I know that there are difficult ascensions to make. There are afflictions that I will bear. How is it that I can stay on plane? You know, for us, coming through now a year and several months of an episode, an accident, the Lord is the one who has managed us, has given a beautiful disposition to Zachary. But we've been planning because the importance of the pilgrimage to be in the house of the Lord and to know with certainty we've raised our kids to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. At the age of 12, we have what appears to be a statement concerning the maturity of Jesus. And as I mentioned Mary and Joseph, I did so as a compliment to their parenting. I think one way or the other, Jesus would have done just fine. <laughs> but there is a compliment because it was important. The other thing that I wanted to share with you is that at this age in his life, as the eldest in his family, the scriptures tell us both in Mark and Matthew, that he did have brothers, at least four of them. 
and at least two sisters because the plural is used. You can go back and look at those, but it would be Mark 6, which identifies this curiosity that when Jesus came back to Nazareth, his home, to reveal himself as the one that Isaiah spoke towards, um, they question him, is this not Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, and his brothers, citing the four? Two of them, these would be half-brothers, would become apostles, Jude and James. Very different in their personalities, very uniquely different. We don't know about Simon or Judas. We're not sure with three or Joseph, we're not sure about what participation perhaps in the early church they had. But the reason I cite this is because they are now on an arduous pilgrimage as a community from Nazareth, moving towards the place which is the pinnacle of spiritual life, Jerusalem. As you've known, when we can cite particular mileage, we do about 91 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem by way of manner they would be walking. So it would be a hardy um, effort. There would be carts and mules, perhaps horses, a lot of dusty footsteps kicking up as they moved in that direction. Planning, it would have been a real planned out experience. And then you can imagine that with simply kids involved and not to leave any behind strategy. It wasn't simply probably at the age of 12 that Jesus was on a tour of the holy city with his folks as he had been year after year. He very likely is in an ensemble with at least four of his brothers and very likely two of his sisters. You can do the math if it's a year and a half apart between kids or generally speaking, at least two, it kind of clocks in there. There could be a longer waiting period. Again, there was 13 between my eldest brother. I was the last of a baby boomer. And so you can imagine that they have this oldest son, and very likely he was a very organized eldest son. He was a big help, I'm sure, to mom and what would be his foster dad. This is technically what Joseph would be to him, one who took upon himself to be a father figure, a leader in his home. Obviously the father of the half-brothers and the two sisters at least that Jesus would have been a part of. And so this would have been a, an incredible test of maturity to make that 91-mile pilgrimage he would have remembered all the way back to the very early years. So this is 12 years of a 91-mile tour, there and back, averaging over at least three days. And that would be a hard ride. It's an amazing story. What do we find in this? Well, first of all, they all got there. And this is where the story picks up, which is where I want to return to it. He was 12 years old. They went up to Jerusalem. This is verse 42. According to the custom of the feast. That's what they're there for. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, 
the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. So I needed to introduce to you the potential of siblings there, because if you have other than one child, you can get easily distracted. And especially if you're dealing with one of those children who has an exceedingly high maturity level, never doing anything wrong, never suspect of being, you know, too distant from the voice of mom and dad, this would have been a first for them. Because very likely, this is now the nudging that we're beginning to see in the life where Jesus makes decisions that are what? Highly spiritual. There's a time in which highly spiritual decisions made by children that have been raised to love and know God have an outcome that very likely with all the other things that are needing to be done in a domestic home require an independent letting go. But notice this. It's not entirely simply letting go. We're just told right now He's not there. It says that as this continues, supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So now this entourage that has been traveling together as a community of worshipers they're spending at least a day now going through all of, if you would, the family groupings, the caravans. They're trying to find with urgency what happened to Jesus. Wasn't he taking care of the th four older ones? What happened? Wait, is somebody on duty with the two sisters? You know, uh, there are families that can relate to that. For, for my family, it was always, where's Rich and Rob? Where are they? We actually had a couple that was, they were a wonderful couple. They were a high school couple. Um, they, they ultimately married, but, but uh, it was Mariana. And uh, her husband was Johnny. And she drafted him in to help on babysitting duties because we were fast little diaper-clad redheads. And there was no fence that could contain us, no animal that could uh, offend us. Um, I I just heard we were like we were like none other. We were good at getting into everything. My mom even had to tie our bedroom door to another doorknob across the hallway to make sure we couldn't get out. But she forgot that one of them would try, and that was me out a window. And that didn't, that didn't do really good. I hit stuff going down. And so now we are told when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. Verse 46, now so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple. Okay, I want to be able to defend them. It's a big city. This would have been a very populous city. And in particular to the feast, this holy day, a lot of people. And all I can tell you is when there's a lot of people, even though you have bearings as to where you were at, 
what you were doing the last time you saw him, it doesn't always translate into there is where he will be. And I've shared with you before I lost Zachary at Knott's Berry Farm. And that was my only charge. Keep track of Zachary. Got it. That was Chrissy telling me. Don't lose him. I won't. They went on the ghost rider. Had the Lord not been my deliverer, I would have been a ghost. I had only the time for that ride to be completed to find Zachary among the multitude. And I was ready to literally grab a microphone and say, the gates are closing, no one will leave, hit the deck. I couldn't even describe Zachary to anybody. I honestly couldn't. What kind of hair? It's just hair. I don't know. Blondie, brownie, something like that. How tall is he? Like about here? Maybe here? I'm not sure. What shirt was he wearing? I don't know. I don't know anything that you're asking me, but he's my son, and I need to find him. And this might be that kind of scenario with Mary and Joseph. Have you seen my son? What? Lady, mister, look at all the kids. Look at all the families here. Here's what happens, though, and this is the part that I want to link in to the desire, because Jesus expresses it when he's found. They found him in the temple, sitting, it says, in the midst of the teacher's both listening to them and asking them questions. He's not going through the market, which is probably what I would have done. Don't necessarily think I would have been intrigued in scholastic banter, theology. I would have been looking for the fruit. I would have been looking for the things that merchants were selling. I'm just saying that's what I probably would have done at 12 years of age. Jesus is found in the midst, probably the woman's court is where he would have had the opportunity to have sat in. This is an area that would have been open to most people. It's where most of the teachings would be conducted when he grew up. And there he is as a 12-year-old. Notice, though, what he's doing. He's God, but notice what he's doing. It says that he's listening in the midst of the teachers, and then he's asking them questions. I might suggest to you that this is the beginning of his rhetorical questioning. This is when a question is asked that actually tests the heart on a person's response. It's not that he didn't know. What he knew was to how to ask the question that would bring about a response that he could evaluate and that they could come into agreement. Wow, he knows my heart. He's reading my mind. This is the type of scholar Jesus was at 12. He couldn't be stumped on Scripture. What he did in the knowledge of the Word, which the Scriptures declare he is, the author of it, the author of life, is he posed questions that opened up the heart of those who, belonging to an institution, had lost their heart for God because it was all about the institution. It wasn't about God though what they were obviously in the center of the hub of worship, it was about other things. And they were arguing continually on points that the Lord would say later on, that is not God's heart to be involved in that as a distraction. 
But Jesus is found both to listen, which again is what we are called to do. The Lord is in our midst. We're to be those who listen. And he's asking. Do we have the opportunity to ask God rhetorical questions? I think we lack with regard to that. God always has the ability to take the question and to open up our hearts. Retort, though, in terms of what we can towards others is a means by which we can allow them to think more specifically about their life situation. Have you made your bed in hell? God's there. Do you want to have a positional change that gives you an opportunity to experience spiritual liberation? Jesus is the answer. These things can be done. With God, I think he has permission and authority to ask me the rhetorical questions in which he probes me for the answer that ultimately will reveal, hmm, that was my problem. Hmm, that was where I got off base. And so as he's here in this place, which is the temple area, all who heard him were astonished, it says, at his understanding and his answers. Astonished. You've been astonished before by people's answers. You know, I was, I always found myself astonished at my father's answers when he was in addressing either his brothers or when he was in a group of what you would call military officers. He would allow me to kind of scooch near. And I remembered that I was not only fascinated with what they would talk about, but how my father would answer. Even as a colonel, he was both linguistically skilled and he was very diplomatic. He was a statesman. I mean, he could think on his feet and he could think intellectually with a heart that just was motivational. This is the type of person that Jesus is being equated with right now. There's respect that is just flowing towards him on how he is able to discern at the age of 12 what these scholars are talking about. And when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother to him, and this is obviously now Mary and Joseph catching up, when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Now, there is something here that, that is kind of uniquely different. It's her phrasing. Your father and I have sought you anxiously. Is that theologically wrong? No, it means that, in essence, Joseph has become, in his role, a father figure to him. He's doing things that are right, that warrant the title of being a father figure to him. He's not the father of Jesus but he has become so tuned in to the responsibility, literally, of being a rearer of the Son of God. Mary compliments, literally, the work that her husband has done in raising this young man. I think it's a compliment that Mary is giving. You've done well. Very often, husbands and wives can find themselves feeling disappointed in their roles as to how they've done parenting. It's important to be able to see the compliments that they're worthy 
of being able to hear and to really apprehend both the mother to hear how well she's doing parenting and the father to hear how well he's doing parenting. But Joseph right now literally has been a faithful man. He's never said, you know, he's God. He can kind of take care of it on his own. Don't you think, Mary? We don't have any problem with him at all. In fact, why don't we just knit him to the next family over and then we'll see if we can take a vacation. In fact, let's send all the kids with them and we'll catch up with them later, like next year. So that hasn't been the problem. But Mary and Joseph are impressed. They're amazed at where they found him to be. But notice this as they continue on in just a very short dialogue. My son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. I suppose that once your first child is growing up and the others are following, you've done that, calling your kids different names of the siblings that they share in that household. You've ever done that? I've gone through all, you know, four of my kids' names trying to find one of them that works for the kid that I'm actually talking to. It doesn't really fully work with Karis, but you have multiple combinations with Spencer, Zachary, and Everest. And then sometimes it's just, whatever your face is. There, there is something about, you know, that time in which either correctively or instructionally you're fighting just to name that person. And this incident right now is one in which they've seen Jesus have a captive audience and the statement that he's making is saying, this is where I belong. And Jesus being able to insightfully, maturely say, you know it was my destiny. You saw my enthusiasm on every footstep that we took from the time that I was born to this day at 12 years of age. This is my destiny. This is where I belong. You didn't even need to look for me. You could have completely entrusted me as you have in times past to what you now see me do. Jesus would have made it, by the way, back fine. But what it does show you is it shows you the heart of a parent to obviously responsibly know where his kid is at or daughter is at. And so the Lord allows there to be a real interaction in scripture of what it's like to be highly spiritual and very, on the other end, human. There are things that do alarm us. There are things that do provoke us. There are reasons to not be settled and even battle anxiety. And this is what is being voiced right now. Could they have had a greater confidence? Jesus would say, yep, you could have. You didn't choose to, but you could have. You never needed to worry about me, mom, and dad because I had to be about my father's business. And from the day that you heard the angel's voice, mom, you knew that I was on a course that you could only gently steer because I'm going to be guiding it the rest of the way. Twelve years of age. This would have been for a young Jewish boy 
the time of spiritual maturity in which he could sit among the elders. So actually what he is doing right now is one of his first obligations by permission, by permission, lawful permission to attend this sharing of scripture. Pretty awesome. He's doing that at 12. We have an opportunity to influence the enthusiasm that our kids have for the Word of God. And we see that in this church. So we have it here at the pulpit. We have it in Sunday school. But you know what? Here's the bottom line. You have it as parents. When we see kids come here, and when we see them mature year after year after year, it's because of what is happening on your faithful pilgrimage to this place. This is the place in which the heartbeat of God is sensed, and in which the young child hearing the word of God, sensing the love of the Lord, being highly spiritual, they're making connections with God concerning their future, their movement, the choices that they want to make. I'm always fascinated where people tell me they're going, our young guys and gals that are now in college. So what do you, what's the Lord showing you? Where are you going? What are you doing? Jesus was on cue, on the mark. And with this one probing question, how did you not know that I needed to be about my father's business? And it says, though, she did not understand the statement he spoke to them Verse 51, they went down with them, or then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was, notice this, subject to them. Thank you, parents, for teaching your kids to be subject as well to you in all things. That's a command with a promise. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus, notice this, increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and with man. He's very impressive at age 12, and guess what? Every year that he will make at least this annual pilgrimage, he will continue to be more greatly impressive. The scholars that would have been talking to him then would have been marking him as going, wow, he just keeps getting better and better. We don't know how many he would have influenced within this elite religious organization, Judaism, Pharisees and Sadducees, we just know that at this age, he has impressed them, and every year thereafter, he will be more impressive. So therefore, I'm asking us, is each year thereafter more and more impressive about what the Lord is revealing to you than the first time he said, that's awesome, that's good, that was a word, because moving into 2022, which we are, we have to have what I believe is the central theme here. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's Psalm 27. It's important because in that psalm, the Lord, through David, is declaring his passion. It's a great verse. I want to be able to turn there really quick with you as we filter through this. Psalm 27, important to mark because though you've been there, maybe it will help you 
have a confident realignment on what this year ought to look forward to, to know him. It's a new year, semicolon. Know him. Know him how? Know him better than you did last year. Know him in the revelation of what he is telling you to do and how he wants to utilize you. My pastor would say it very cleverly. It's not what you have to do, it's what you get to do, which makes all the difference that our faith affords us great liberty. Great liberty. You don't have to do nothing for God. And I realized my vernacular was awkward, but you don't. It's just that the opportunities await you on what you get to do. And I will tell you, and I have, that just to come to the house of the Lord, getting to be free to drive here, brings great delight, great privilege, because it's in agreement with what we see in the life of Jesus at the age of 12. That was it. He wanted to just be there, and he wanted to hang out there, and he wanted to have more interaction spiritually with men that he will one day challenge in what their perception is of God. Every year that goes by, every visitation that Jesus makes, guess what? We never hear again of his parents wondering, where's Jesus? It's very likely that in the ensuing years, though he was under them, it's very likely they said, Jesus, you got this. We'll see you back home. Psalm 27 says this. He is the light and my salvation. Who? The Lord is my light and my salvation. When he came in there as a 12-year-old, he lit up the place. Even though that place was noted for these beautiful, extravagant candelabras, he lit up the place with his enthusiasm, his wisdom, his understanding, his ability to question the heart. Whom shall I fear? David Penns shared this yesterday with my family. The Lord is my strength, is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. This was David's heart seeing the deliverance of himself time and time again when he had enemies around him. Jesus wasn't even remotely concerned about that in his absence from his folks. Most kids would go, oh my goodness, I've been left behind. Where's my cell phone? Back in my day, if you were left behind, that was really severe because we didn't have cell phones. We had nothing. I mean, that was severe. Though an army encamp against me, my heart, notice this, shall not fear. This is a year in which your heart shall not fear. It should be a year in which you're choosing. I'm not going to be living in fear. I'm not going to allow it to motivate me in the things concerning God. The war may rise against me, and this I will be confident. And here's the verse I want to plant right now in your heart. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. 
Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. One of my favorite times in this house is to listen to the praise and worship that is ascending. And I must tell you that I'm very impressed with the projection of lyrics. I, I, I hymned and hawed over that for a long time, but I actually like it a lot to have hands raised, to be actually able to really focus on that big font and to hear the collaboration of the lead singer and the harmonizing singers and the instruments. It's quite an exchange, in my opinion, of, of spiritual connection. I'm enjoying it a lot, and there's a lot of technicality to it. The point that I'm making, though, with regard to closing on this right now is that David literally is projecting the heart of Jesus whose desire is being shown to us at the age of 12. Before that, it was in increments as his family would be led year after year. But what they did, faithful to their charges, parents, and those who were managing other children as well, is that they didn't ever forsake the importance of managing a family and managing God. Do you know that the Lord allows us to manage him? He really does. He loves us so much that he gives the liberty to each of us on how we manage time with him, manage our study in the word with him, manage our prayer time, manage our giftings that he's given to all of us. That's a deep love. That's an awesome responsibility that God has given to us. So I was intrigued with this because David really does highlight the same passion in the verses that we've read to what Jesus is emulating right now, literally at the age of 12. Because David was a devotional young boy who grew up to be very spiritual, confident in the Lord, and he did incredible things for God, still known as the greatest king of Israel. And yet his tenure was like the tenure of men, about 70 years. And they have his sarcophagus in the city. You can go and visit it. It's presumed to be that's where David's resting place is. But not really. That's where his once body that thrived in this earth following the Lord lays. But he's with the Lord presently. He told us that he would do that. He couldn't bring back his son from heaven, but one day he would go to meet his son in heaven. And so in closing on a final passage for you, um, I want you to go to Psalm 37. And this is familiar to you as well. And that's this with regard to this new year and to know him and God's desire for you. And this is where I think a promise comes to many of us again, I think to be appreciated. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Does that sound like a hard thing to do? Notice the promise here, delight yourself also 
in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. And that means, as well, that you will more greatly desire the things of God in your life. And you will desire to live and walk a life that truly is both liberating and it is awesome in terms of what doors open for you. Liberated. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. New year, know Him. 2022, God's desire is for you. Exemplified in the passion that Jesus had as as a 12-year-old, obedient to his parents. Thank you, parents, for leading your kids, calling them back to the Word, to the work of God. You know, you always have that ability to do that. And we see that done. And it is making a difference. It's making a legacy difference in you stirring the giftings in them, challenging them to be back on course spiritually. So important. And so for us, we can talk about all the things that the world is troubled by, but we need to talk about all the things that the church has been triumphant through Jesus. He's led the way. He's conquered the grave. We're set to meet him in the air. But while we wait, we don't have to wonder about what the next thing is that's going to happen to us. We simply have to marvel at the next thing that God has sovereignly chose to bring us in to a greater awareness of his presence. And he's doing that. 